Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Jeff Kossif, author of the new book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Jeff Kossif is assistant professor in the U.S. Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department, where he teaches cybersecurity law. He has practiced technology and First Amendment law and clerked for judges Mylon D. Smith Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and Leona M. Brinkema of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District Court of Virginia. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and the recipient of the George Polk Award in National Reporting. We spoke to Jeff about the incredible impact Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has had on the Internet as we know it, some of the complicated issues surrounding free speech protections, and the dangers the law is facing now in Congress today. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited uh, to be talking with you. Your new book is out, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, and wanted to hear a little bit more about these 26 words. Your, your book explains how these 26 words in, a, in an obscure federal law were the central catalyst for the multi-billion dollar inter- internet industry as we know it. Things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, search engines like Google or Bing, consumer review sites, Wikipedia, all of these things uh, as the result of these 26 words. Certainly not an understatement to say that this industry has radically changed life in America and in the world. Could you tell us a little bit about this law and its impact? Sure, so the law is known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and it was quietly added to more than 2,000-page telecommunications overhaul in 1996. Uh, The 26 words that I'm talking about state, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Now, that might not sound entirely clear to you. Uh, It is not entirely clear to me, and it really was not clear to most people who were watching the telecommunications debate in 1996 because it received barely any press coverage or opposition. It was uh, just very silently added to this massive law while everyone else was focused on things like the rates for telephone long-distance calls and local phone service competition, um, because this was in 1996, and this is when the internet was really in its infancy, at least in the modern era. And to, to understand why, how this got into the law, you first have to understand some history that actually, um, appropriately for a Cornell Press podcast, goes back to booksellers. Um, so we, we uh, start in the 1950s when there are a number of states and cities passing obscenity ordinances that make it illegal to sell or even just have in your store a book or magazine that's considered obscene. And the obscenity standards were much more stringent back then than they are now. So you started having booksellers getting fined and even arrested for selling books. Um, And there was one case that really started it all In 1956, there was a sale of a book in a Los Angeles newsstand by that was owned or a bookstore owned by a man named Eliezer Smith, a 72-year-old immigrant from Poland, and uh, the 
LAPD vice squad arrests him and he is tried in municipal court and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Uh, he appeals the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court says is that uh, it's fine to prohibit obscenity, but you can't hold a bookseller or any other distributor of content liable unless there was some evidence of their state of mind, meaning that they either knew that the book was obscene or should have known that, was, that it was obscene or somehow otherwise illegal. So that's the standard that's set in this case that the Supreme Court ruled on in the 50s. And for the next 30 years, it's pretty um, easy to apply. Then we get to the early 90s when you have CompuServe and Prodigy starting to connect people to the internet. And the question becomes, are they, do they receive the same protection as a bookstore? And CompuServe and Prodigy had two very different business models. So CompuServe had all this third-party content, newsletters, chat rooms, bulletin boards, and they didn't do anything to moderate it. They had no policies. It was the Wild West. Uh, Prodigy, on the other hand, had a lot of moderation. They had family-friendly policies. They wanted to keep online services clean. So what uh, happened was both of them ended up getting sued by people who were the subject of third-party comments that they said were defamatory. And CompuServe received this First Amendment protection, but Prodigy didn't because Prodigy tried to moderate its content. So that's what got Congress really interested in figuring out how do we solve what's known as the moderator's dilemma, meaning uh, how, how do we solve this issue where there's a disincentive for companies to moderate content. And that's how they ended up passing Section 230. If you're an online, you're not going to be treated as the publisher of any third-party content. And there were two reasons for this. First was to encourage companies to basically come up with market-based solutions for moderating content. And the second was to have a government hands-off approach to the internet, recognizing that it posed this tremendous, uh, tre tremendous benefits to the economy, innovation, and free speech. That's fascinating. So it sounds as if the, the, these court precedents gives uh, Section 230 as a reputation of almost a super, a super First Amendment, um, giving really robust online speech protections that we haven't seen before uh, or is not really seen anywhere else in the world. What are you, you know, and your book goes into the nuances of this. What are some of the trade-offs between free speech protections versus the damage suffered by victims of defamation and other wrongs? So it really depends on where you attribute the cause of these wrongs. So Section 230 has allowed a lot of sites to, to flourish uh, with very hands-off policies. Uh, so if someone posts something on social media that defames another person, um, the person who's the subject of the defamation, who, who's the, uh, who wrote the defamatory content can be sued, but Facebook or Twitter can't be sued. So it often ends up leaving uh, the victims with little recourse because sometimes it's not possible to track down the person who, who posted anonymously, for example. Um, there's, there have been cases where websites have allowed terrorist organizations to transmit content to re recruit members, raise money. Uh, there, there have been a lot of really vicious 
harassment campaigns, revenge pornography. Um, but I'll, the reason why I say that you really have to think about what the cause is, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's that Section 230 causes these harms to occur. It makes it more difficult for people to recover damages. Um, there's one case of, that I spend a lot of time in the book talking about. Um, it's a woman named Ellen Batesel. And she was a lawyer and moved to North Carolina, uh, building her law practice. And suddenly uh, she stopped all of her clients start canceling on her. And she's wondering, why are they doing this? Uh, she receives a letter a few months later in the mail, an anonymous letter saying that an anonymous, saying that a, a handyman who had worked on her house um, and they'd gotten into a dispute about the services, um, he sent an email to a museum security website and listserv saying, I did this work on Ellen Bates' house. I noticed she had a lot of fancy artwork, and I think she said she was Heinrich Himmler's granddaughter. So basically giving the heavy implication that she had, all, she, she owned all of the stolen, looted Nazi artwork, uh, which she said she did not, and she never said anything like that. Um, but the owner of this website or the operator, he just he made some minor edits and posted it to the website. So her life basically gets ruined by this because she represented a lot of art galleries and entertainment clients, and they start Googling her and seeing that she claimed to be Himmler's granddaughter and had stolen Nazi artwork. So this really ruined her life. She sued, and there were a few reasons why the case wasn't able to go forward, but Section 230 was one of them. The court said even though the operator of this website made the choice to post this and even made edits to it, Section 230 protects, uh, protects him from the lawsuit. Now, I asked her about it. I spent a lot of time talking with her. She was very candid and open, and uh, she very much disagrees with Section 230. But she also said, I, I said, well, do you think Section 230 caused your harm? And she paused for a second, and she said, no, because he, the, the guy who ran the website was in the Netherlands. He probably didn't know what Section 230 was. Um, and then she, I, I, I won't curse on this podcast, but she said, people are going to be a-holes. <laughs> and I think that was actually one of the, it's in the book if anyone wants to see it, but uh, that was one of the more insightful comments that anyone said about Section 230 while I was researching the book, because they, they are. I, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily think that Section 230 makes people do bad things, but it does make websites perhaps less responsive in terms of policing the content and rectifying harms. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no real easy answer. Um, you know, it reminds me of some of those moral dilemmas that, you know, what, what, what would you do or what, what's, what do you do to someone who yells, there's a fire in a, in a movie theater, you know, those type of classic uh, moral dilemmas. Um, but right now, over the past couple of years, uh, Section 230 is now uh, feeling some heat, particularly um, con congressional hearings uh, on Facebook and the role the social media had to play in the, in the 2016 election. Uh, you just had a, a great op-ed that was published in the Los Angeles Times, uh, the title, Section 230 Created the Internet as We Know It, Don't Mess With It. Um, and so tell us, tell us more about what's going on right now politically and the challenges that Section 230 faces. 
so for the first probably 20 years of Section 230's history, so from 1996 until a few years ago, the internet-based companies had a really easy time in Washington, D.C. Most people liked them. There was some criticism, but they were seen as this real example of American innovation. Uh, but And they, they were always seen as these great startups that have done right. Uh, I think that has changed significantly, um, really even before the election, but just as there have been more claims, for example, from people who have been the victims of ISIS, um, sex trafficking victims, all sorts of really discrete harms that have happened uh, and have been linked to websites that claim they're neutral intermediaries. So I, it, I think there's very little bipartisan agreement in Washington, D.C. right now, but one of the few areas of bipartisan agreement is they're not very happy with the big online platforms. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is deserved. Uh, there has been a bit of arrogance among the platforms for many years about how little they have to do and how that they're just these beacons of free speech and that and and they shouldn't be responsible for what their users are doing. Um, I I think that is misunderstanding part of the reason why Congress passed Section 230 in the first place, which was this idea of empowering users and the companies to be much more responsible. Uh, and the idea was that the companies through their users could actually be uh, develop more thoughtful moderation practices than Congress or the Federal Communications Commission. Now, um, we, we have we have seen, particularly for some of the smaller platforms, relatively, uh, we, we've seen some more thoughtful procedures. Um, in the book, for example, I write about uh, Pinterest. They um, have had a problem where there have been some image conscious pins um, that were, they were concerned about uh, promoting eating disorders. So they actually worked with the National Eating Dis Disorders Association to come up with ways, with keywords that might be linked to pro-eating disorder posts to um, basically target content that might help people. Um, and you're, you're seeing some of that. And I think that's really thoughtful and that's the direction that we have to go in. Uh, the problem is I don't think we're necessarily seeing it fast enough. And I think we're, that, that's where, where I'm not totally sure if Section 230 can even survive at this point. Do you think that, um, you know, in the next two to three years, there will be a significant change to it? Or, or do you think there'll be some slight modification that, that uh, with nuance? Uh, maybe, maybe nuance well, is not even a word we can use in D.C. anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, well con Congress did pass an amendment um, to Section 230 last year to deal to exempt claims involving sex trafficking because there were sex trafficking victims who were suing a website where they were trafficked as minors. And that actually had has created a, uh, at least now a new precedent that if you're upset about something with Section 230, you can propose an amendment. There, There's nothing currently pending in terms of proposed legislation that I'm aware of, but I've heard talk of things like um, create an exemption for enabling terrorist recruitment and 
other sort of very, very uh, discrete subjects like that. The concern becomes that at some point, Section 230 is like a piece of Swiss cheese, uh, where there there's so many exceptions that it doesn't provide the certainty that companies that, that companies have been able to rely on if there's so so many exceptions. Now that said, since Section 230 was passed in the first place, there's always been an exception, for example, for uh, federal criminal law enforcement. So we can deal with some exceptions, but I think they have to be thoughtful and they have to really um, be targeted at issues that can't be addressed otherwise. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, we're very excited to uh, be publishing your book. I'm sure you're very excited to see it out in print. Um, a lot yes. of work has gone into this. Um, yes. and you're going to be presenting the book uh, at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, uh, April 13th. Uh, what do you have planned at the festival? I'll be speaking at the LA Times Book Festival on a panel about the internet and society. So we're going to have, for example, an author who wrote a biography about Mark Zuckerberg and an author who wrote a book about the right of publicity, which is the ability to control the use of your image and likeness online. So I think it'll be a really interesting panel that gets to many of the key issues related to online speech. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, any of our listeners are in LA, please head over on April 13th, uh, see Jeff talk on this panel. Uh, and also uh, go to your uh, favorite bookstore or online and, and purchase the new book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, congratulations again on your book. Thanks so much. That was Jeff Kossif, author of The 26 Words That Created the Internet. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Jeff's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.